Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 144, is That's it? right, it's number 144. 144, proving that I can count with a periodicity of a week in between. And who are you? Who am I? Yes. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein, and I know you to be Dr. Heather Hying, and this is the Dark Horse Podcast, and um, we are uh, we're raring to go. Um, long-time viewers will know that we have moved and we have had to abandon our studio and we are working on a new studio, but uh, we now live on an island where everything moves slowly. So we're getting there. Um, your correspondence has poured in requesting um, that our new set have even more wood than our last one. <laughs> We've done an analysis and it turns out the only way to do that is to use thicker pieces because it was pretty much all wood. Yeah, and that's not going to be visible, is it? Well, they'll know, I think. Okay. Yeah, the, the correspondence has poured in, meaning that we got one letter suggesting more wood on the set. But I thought it was a good suggestion, at the very least. <laughs> You're giving me that look. <laughs> I just like every, every, everything about the story is fabricated, that's all. Oh, not fabricated. The idea that you look at correspondence, for instance. I mean, wood isn't fabricated, <laughs> it's grown. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, that was... That was a low blow, but, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> accurate, but low. <laughs> All right, so here we are. Uh, it's Dark Horse Livestream 144, um, and we are streaming from this, this makeshift situation. We will have a studio again at some point, but it's going to be a little while. So uh, for your viewing pleasure, if you're only listening at home um, and you want more dog, uh, we, we got dog. We got dog this time. We got Madison right here between us. Uh, who hopefully does not start storing. We sometimes do put her to sleep. Well. Yeah. Yeah. She just gets exhausted with us. Okay, so we will be doing a, a Q&A after this live stream. Will we not? We we certainly will. We will. That you, question has now been answered. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. We are streaming on both YouTube and Odyssey. The chat is live on Odyssey. Uh, you can, as always, find our book, Everywhere books are sold, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. You can find merchandise at our store, darkhorsestore.org. You can find um, my weekly writings at naturalselections.substack.com, uh, where I wrote about uh, vaccine mandates uh, this week. And as always, we want to remind you that we are supported by you, and we are grateful to you. We appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing both our full episodes on Odyssey or YouTube or Spotify or the clips uh, uh, at Dark Horse Podcast Clips uh, at Odyssey or YouTube. And we even appreciate you occasionally shaking your fist at the screen. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate disagreement. We appreciate honest disagreement, heartfelt disagreement. The, the trolls and the, um, well... The trolls, not so appreciated. No. Yeah, and there are some I others. Say so. Yeah, I mean, no one really appreciates that. Um, <clears throat> and uh, if you're in a position to do so, we, of course, appreciate other kinds of support as well. You can join one of our Patreons. Brett had a great conversation this morning uh, with one of his Patreon groups. We also have uh, monthly private Q&As that you can access through mine. And on either of ours, you can get access to the Dark Horse Discord server, where um, a number of people from who met on that Discord server just completed a, uh, a camping trip, an actual meetup, and I just saw some pictures from it. It looks like it was wonderful. Okay, you can also, no, you can't. Uh, yeah, you can. Yes, you can. Uh, consider 
uh, any of the products that we actually have as sponsors on the show because we do not read ads for products or services that we don't actually vouch for. And we have three at the beginning of the show this week, as every week. So without further ado, we will proceed with those. All right. And I'm up first this week. Our first wonderful sponsor is Vivo Barefoot Shoes. Regular listeners are well familiar with Vivo, but if you're not, your feet might be in for a treat. Seriously, try these shoes. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet. However, Vivos are made by people who know feet and know how to use them. Here at Dark Horse, we love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They're fantastic. The only reason that I'm not wearing them right now is because they are not allowed on the couch. <laughs> Our feet are the products of millions of years. Unlike the dog. The dog, is, the dog has persuaded us that she must be allowed on the couch, but not in her shoes. Nope. Our feet are the products of millions of years of evolution. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot, but modern shoes are the overly cushioned and strangely shaped product of a failed design process, one that has contributed to a health crisis in which people move less than they might because their feet hurt. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. The number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They are a certified B Corp pioneering regenerative business principles. Their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild on it. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. Our second sponsor this week is Ned a CBD company that stands out in a highly saturated CBD market. Ned was started by two friends who discovered that their hypermodern lives were leaving them feeling empty, bewildered, and disconnected. And that's a quote. Something about this way of life, the quote continues, just wasn't working. <clears throat> so they started Ned. You can buy CBD products in nearly every coffee shop or grocery store, but Ned's blends stand out. I'm particularly fond of their de-stress blend. Ned's De-Stress Blend is a one-to-one -one formula of CBD and CBG made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and also features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. This combination leaves me feeling a bit easier with whatever comes my way. Many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. Just like with low-quality alcohol, however, low-quality CBD can have undesired effects. Ned is USDA-certified organic. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants, grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Peonia, Colorado. Also, <clears throat> excuse me, Ned shares third-party lab reports and information about who farms their products and their extraction process on their website. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. They're chock-full of premium CBD and a full spectrum of active cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and trichomes. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Dark Horse listeners get 15% off 
NED products with code DARKHORSE. Visit helloned.com slash darkhorse to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash darkhorse to get 15% off. Thank you, NED, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. You know, I've never been to Ashwagandha, but I've always wanted to go. Well, now's your chance. <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. No, no. no. Don't get up and go now. I'm oh, saying okay. Ned offers you a way A in. chance to visit Ashwagandha without leaving your seat. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. All right. Um, our, for those just listening, our, uh, our elder statesman cat, Tesla, has just climbed into the lap of, of Madison, our Labrador, and they are <laughs> they're sitting together and cuddling. I'm not sure how much Maddie is into it, but there it is. All right. Our final sponsor today is Public Goods. Public Goods is a one-stop shop for everyday essentials. Their ingredients are carefully sourced, high quality, and affordable. You can simplify your life by getting your necessities at Public Goods. Public Goods has all the stuff. Coffee and tea, grains and oils like olive and avocado. They've got Castile soap and trash bags and laundry detergent. They have spices and extracts, vinegars and hot sauces, dishware and glassware. There is so much at Public Goods to make a meal, including the materials to serve it on. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. Public Goods cares about health and sustainability. Their products are largely free of harmful ingredients and additives, and the ingredients are ethically sourced. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, simple, streamlined aesthetic. And their subscription service is efficient and simple and easy to use. Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place. It really is an everything store. For Dark Horse listeners, we have the following offer. Receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are going to give you $15 to spend on your first purchase. So go to publicgoods.com slash darkhorse or use code darkhorse at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash darkhorse to receive $15 off your first order. All right. We didn't say anything at the top of the hour about where we're going today. Where would you like Ashwagandha, to start? Ashwagandha. That's what... Oh, that's later, though. That's, oh, okay. that's not on screen. After, we're not, the, we're not after taking, the podcast. We're not taking the viewers to Ashwagandha, are we? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen the place. It might be worth it. Helmet cam and all, you know. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll you want to go now? <laughs> no, we should, pro- we should probably do the podcast, okay. I mean, as long as it's on the schedule. That's, <laughs> it is on the schedule. We've got a number of people already here. Yep. We, don't, we don't want to disappoint. So, um, you want to... Oh, everyone's, everyone's showing up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to... Do you want to start? No, should I, I start? Or I think you should start. Okay. I'm a little distracted by all of the, all of the four-legged oh, friends showing up. Definitely not. What, what is the four-legged friend who's off-camera doing now? Breaking the cabinets. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm watching TV in the cabinet. <laughs> watching TV in the cabinet, presumably finding my better uh, computer stand, which has somehow gone missing. All right. Let's see. We, as we have said, apologies. We'll stop apologizing at some point, but we don't have all the usual bells and whistles, and so I can't show my screen. So this is going to be a little... Well, janky, but um, Zach, if we're going to start here, I want you to start by showing the screenshot of the top two news items from Nature this week. So once again, Nature. Okay. Sorry, which Fairfax is now um, playing with a tennis ball. Okay. Cats don't usually do that. No. Um, the one with the two. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. 
I get I get weekly emails from from Nature, the one of the top two uh, science journals in the world. And Nature this week has, and actually, if you could possibly put us in some other corner, that's exactly obscuring a thing I want to be able to see. Um, I can't even read it, so I'm going to have to pull it up. Uh, so in the email that I got from Nature this week, uh, we have the top two pieces are an editorial, how nature contributed to science's discriminatory legacy. We want to acknowledge and learn from our history. And this is, as you might imagine, uh, the, kind of, <clears throat> the kind of thing that everyone is being expected to do now. Apologize for the, uh, the fact that our forebears were not moderns who understood all of the things about bigotry that moderns understand. And the second piece in Nature this week uh, is in, the, in the, basically their review of this week's most important scientific things that are happening and that Nature itself published is worldview. To set transgender policy, look to the evidence. Policy debates concerning transgender people are embroiled in the culture wars. Let data and science, not politicians, guide laws. This written by someone known as Paisley Carraw. So, <clears throat> this piece... Uh, no, not yet. Definitely not. Um, I have to find... I'm not totally prepared here. Mm. This piece, oh my God, the second article, just that transgender, transgender policy looked to the evidence, begins uh, as follows. In March, the U.S. state of Utah passed a law barring transgender girls from high school girls' sports. It defines sex as, quote, the condition of being male or female determined by an individual's genetics and anatomy at birth and prohibits those of, quote, male sex, end quote, from competing against another school on a girl's team. And this piece by, again, Paisley Carra, um, <clears throat> proceeds to make a number of arguments that claim to be relying on data and science. And in this piece, there is literally no definition of sex, no purportedly scientific explanation for how humans, unique among all animals, can supposedly, unique among all mammals, can supposedly change their sex, patently no understanding of the organizational effects of hormones. The author, for instance, seems to believe that hormones only work activationally, and just a you know, brief endocrinological aside here, um, one way of categorizing the effects of hormones is activational versus organizational, and most hormones have both types of effects. An activational effect is one which, when exposed to the hormone, uh, the system that is that can respond to it, and therefore the body in which it lives, the individual in which it lives, responds immediately to the effect of that hormone. That is activational. It is basically the body is activated by the exposure to the hormone. Uh, then there are organizational effects, which is to say early in development or at other moments in development, as new systems are being laid down during development, uh, exposure to the hormone basically sets things in process such that once exposed, things are set in process which can never be undone. And it's these organizational effects of things like sex steroid hormones, especially testosterone, but also of estrogens, uh, which are widely, almost universally, I think, ignored and certainly ignored by the author of this piece, which gets such a, a highlight uh, position in nature this week, um, when they talk about whether or not you can actually be truly, um, truly turn into the other sex. 
the fact is that if you went through puberty as a male, uh, you cannot undo all of that simply by taking uh, cross-sex hormones or, um, or even by taking puberty blockers because many of the organizational effects of testosterone you actually underwent in utero and in early childhood. So it strikes me here that um, the reality is even worse than you're portraying it, and you, you hint at it here. Okay. Um, you cannot I'm trying have, not to get out of control. <laughs> you cannot have both arguments. You cannot pretend that the only impacts mm. are activational. Yes. Right? And thereby say, well, if we change your hormone profile, we've changed you into the other sex. And also say that it is important that people transition early, right? That we cannot afford to delay uh, transition because that will have permanent impacts on the people who um, who don't get the treatments early. So the point is, if it is true, and it is true, that blocking puberty uh, has an important impact, then it is because there are organizational effects which you then cannot pretend uh, have been eliminated by um, some late-in-life treatment. That's exactly it's, it's right. purely contradictory. That's exactly right. Uh, I think that's that's very important. And uh, just to, to reiterate also the point I made, which is that the organizational effects of testosterone do not, do not, the first time that they rear their heads is not in puberty. Right. Right. That they begin in utero uh, with uh, basically beginning the process of the formulation of primary sex characteristics. And also there's another surge of basically sex differentiation. And I think it's toddlerhood, so somewhere around like two to three years, if I remember correctly. And I didn't go back and look exactly, so I may have that a little bit off. Um, and then there is a period of time in, um, you know, after toddlerhood, but sort of early childhood through what we would think of as like elementary school and early middle school years, uh, at least as far as schooling goes here in the U.S., where uh, the sex hormones, the sex steroid hormones aren't that active. Um, but it's not that they haven't already been so. And you cannot undo organizational effects. Can you mitigate the activational effects of something by taking that something away? For sure. You can, in fact, possibly reverse it entirely. But uh, testosterone, estrogens, and many other hormones as well don't simply have activational effects. So the argument, um, the argument falls apart. This in a piece that claims um, <clears throat> that what it wants us to be doing is, again, to look at the uh, sub-headline. And you can show us again, Zach. It's going to be a little while before I ask you to screenshot again. Um, <clears throat> is that we, he wants... I think I think this person Paisley. Yeah, Paisley. I don't honestly know. Um, Paisley wants data and science, not politicians, to guide laws. Well, well, Paisley, I got bad news for you then, uh, because uh, you can cherry pick all of the crap articles that you want, and you did so in this piece, uh, and that does not change the fact that sex in animals is binary, and in mammals, uh, you we do not change sex, and this does not. This does not belie the evidence, uh, the existence of intersex people very occasionally, that's development due to developmental anomalies, nor to very, very occasional trans people who can, in order to get better alignment between their perceived sex and their actual sex, um, try to do everything they can to live as the sex that they are not, but they will never be the sex that they are not. Again, it's somewhat logically worse than this because... <laughs> 
Um, as you and I have pointed out many times, transness exists in many cultures. It is real. It is extremely rare. But the fact that it exists, that it is apparently not the product of some sort of modern distortion of the world, means that uh, obviating the activational effects isn't even necessary for trans people to play their role and live out a transitioned life. You mean the organizational effects? Either, frankly. Okay. But I guess my point would be, we have modern tools, right? Mm -hmm. We can supplement your testosterone, for example, should you want that. It is apparently not necessary to transness, what transness has been, right? It is a modern uh, opportunity that is apparently not fundamental here, right? We cannot fully change the, uh, the organizational effects. We have some ability to mitigate the activational effects, but none of that is necessary, and certainly surgery even less so. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the problem is, like um, all dishonest political movements, mm -hmm. trans activists want the benefit of part of an argument, and they want to ignore the corollaries of it. And That's right. this is just simply and, not how logic works. It doesn't belong in nature, for one thing. Yeah, in, in the journal Nature. Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, Nature, who presumably wrote the headline, not Paisley, Kara, um, <clears throat> is claiming that this is the argument that comes from science, when it's exactly the opposite. You know, the, the claim is, don't do the politics, do the science, when what the trans activists are doing is the politics, not the science. Right. So they're doing exactly the thing that they're screaming about. I, you know, the, t the tone in this paper is not screaming. I don't mean that Paisley is screaming, but there's certainly a lot of screaming in trans activist land. And uh, it, is, it is almost always claiming that other people are doing the very thing that they are doing. So... For instance, um, there's a reference, there's scant references at all, or even scientifically backed claims in this, <clears throat> in this worldview piece. Um, but one piece that is cited is a piece from 2019 called Gender Identity Non-Discrimination Laws and Public Accommodations, a Review of Evidence Regarding Safety and Privacy in Public Restrooms, Locker Rooms, and Changing Rooms. Well, that sounds impressive, doesn't it? I'm not going to go into it here. I made a bunch of snarky notes here uh, about the fully crap statistics and the claims that aren't backed up by even what they show in the paper. Um, but I will show this little bit of sleazy language since I can't, um, can't show my screen here. Quote from this paper from 2019, Hassenbush et al. Critiques of anti-LGBT policies are abounding. Fogg Davis... 2017, for example, argues for the abolishment of using sex as a criterion for separating facilities. Let me say that again. Proudly, this paper is saying, we are seeing an increase in critique of anti-LGBT policies. Isn't that great? What is their go-to example of an anti-LGBT policy? Using sex as a criterion for separating facilities. Sorry. No. And this actually reminds me, and I, I don't know if we have a whole lot that we know to say about this, but of there is a protest that happened in Vermont today um, by an alliance that identifies as an LGB alliance, um, <clears throat> including people who were at the original Stonewall riots, 
who have been long-term proponents of, of gay rights and increasingly now women's rights and children's rights, who see the tacking on of the T and the Q and the pluses into this originally movement about gay rights as actually um, not simply taking space, but actually overturning many of the many of the gains that not just gays made, but also women have made and children as well. Yep. And again, I mean, it's, uh, it is a permanent state in this uh, style of argument. But again, the idea that in one sentence, um, the differences between the sexes are so important that one must be able to avail themselves of technological interventions to move from one sex to the other in the same breath as, and isn't it uh, a crime that we use sex as a delineator for access to facilities? The point is either sex is important and therefore it makes sense that we would use it uh, as a criterion for entering certain facilities, or it isn't important, in which case, what's all this transitioning business? What are you transitioning from and to? Right. Right? Right. Yes. Um, yeah. No. The the hypocrisy and incoherence is is skin deep. Well, it, it's <laughs> not even. It, it's something else. It is a habitual desire to have part, but not all, of a logical argument. Right. Yeah. It is a mm-hmm. it is a surgical separation of a logical argument from some of its logical consequences, mm-hmm. and that is evidence of bad faith. I mean, yes. it just simply is. Yes. And. This is also a, a corollary. We, we have talked about the fact that you own the downsides of your own arguments. Mm. And this is one of these things, which is if you're going to you know, invoke sex in one sentence in order to justify uh, intervention for transitions, you can't then decry its existence in the second. Right. Right? It's right. one or the other. You cannot. So... Um... There are many things we want to talk about today, and what I want to say next could well be understood to be a a branch in the rabbit warren that I fell into in looking into this that uh, may not be totally warranted, but I think we're going to go here. So in Paisley's um, little bio at Nature, it says, Paisley Carrall is a professor of political science and women's and gender studies, oh, it's actually changed. Oh, this is interesting. At Brooklyn College in the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He is the author of Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. So since I first looked at this a few days ago, that bio has changed. That bio used to proudly display uh, that he is, quote, the founding co-editor of the journal TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. So what happens when you go to this journal? Uh, Again, I can't show my screen. Shortly, I will ask for the second screenshot, but not quite yet. Uh, I will link to this in the show notes. Trans, maybe we just uh, slow down the snoring a little bit here. Um, It's not me, it's her. I I, believe me, I I know. Um, Wakeful snoring is not in your skill set. No. No. (laughs) I'm working on it. (laughs) You don't need to. It's super good. Um, Transgender studies quarterly is uh, described as, here's just the first sentence in about the journal. 
Over the past two decades, transgender studies has become fertile ground for new approaches to cultural analysis. So, sorry, second sentence. TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, offers a high-profile venue for innovative research and scholarship that can test the objectification, objectification, pathologization, and exoticization of transgender lives. Okay, so what do they publish? Well, one of their first pieces that they published in their very first issue uh, is titled Trans Species, and it has the following quote. Not yet. Um, more recently, Ernst Meyer's well-known 1942 biological definition of species as, quote, actually or potentially interbreeding natural populations, which are reproductively isolated from other such groups, end quote, while contested, helped solidify heterosexuality's starring role in species debates. <laughs> there are a lot of species concepts out there. For those of us who have actually thought carefully about what a species is and isn't, and whether or not it is a necessary conceit or an actual thing, and reasonable people can disagree about the answers to these questions, and for those of us who have actually also considered many species concepts, including which ones work best for extinct species versus extinct species, asexual species versus sexually reproducing species, plants versus animals, all the things, okay? Yes, Ernst Meyer, who in 1942 proposed what is the most commonly known and most commonly used uh, species concept for those, do, for those trying to figure out what species are in extant animal land uh, is about actually or potentially interbreeding natural populations which are reproductively isolated, has nothing to do with solidifying heterosexuality's starring role in species debates. Because what it is, is actually trying to get to a definition that is scientifically useful so that we can do phylogenetic analysis and understand who is more closely related to whom. This, 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 this movement of... I, mm, okay, go. I, I, right. I, I, I can't, I, yeah, I know. I, You're about to boil I actually, over here. Like, I, I'm going to sound like a teenage girl here, but I, I can't even. Yeah. I, I can't fucking well, even at this point. And I haven't even gotten to the next one yet. It's even worse than that, right? <laughs> this, this is the theme I'll, for it's today. It's the theme. It's <laughs> oh even worse than that. Oh okay. God. The idea that what is being centered mm. is heterosexuality in space. Species definitions. No, heterosexuality <laughs> is central to reproduction. That's what happened here, right? The idea oh, that there are species, it doesn't matter where you fall out on transactivism, you don't have species without reproduction, which does require a certain amount of heterosexuality. Some species are asexual. Well, okay. Okay. some species are asexual. Fair enough. And some fungus have many, many mating types, etc., etc., etc. Within animals. Yes. Within animals, which is to say for at least the last 500 million years, which is actually smaller than animals, within vertebrates. So probably for one to two billion years, we have been, we are within a lineage that it has binary sexes and reproduce by putting one of each together. Okay? Within vertebrates, we can say for sure that that is uninterrupted in our lineage. That there has never been a moment in our lineage since we've been vertebrates that we, our lineage, has opted for asexuality and then gone back. 
or more than two. Never more than two in our lineage. Nope, didn't happen. Not a possibility. Sorry. I don't care if you think you're a fungus. You're not. Um, yeah. So, all right. This journal. The um, Transgender Studies Quarterly, yes. Transgender Studies Quarterly. Of it? which uh, Paisley Kara, who has a starring role in the journal Nature this week, is a founding co-editor. Yes. So this is a classic case of what years ago I called idea laundry. Yes. Right? Where you want to take an idea that is nonsense and you want to give it the veneer of legitimacy that comes from putting it through the um, the trappings of scientific publication. Right? Yes. So there's obviously no standard of logic here. Right? There's nothing. These are just simply assertions that aren't true and don't make sense that are being dressed up as if they have been through some sober process of evaluation, which they haven't, clearly. And what's worse, okay, it's one thing when that happens in trans... Gender Studies Quarterly, TSQ. Transgender Studies mm -hmm. Quarterly. Mm -hmm. But this is the exact moment at which this goes from the fringe, fringe nonsense journal to the premier science journal, Nature. Right, and not only that, it's worse than that too, because the email that you received that gave you a little tour of important things taking place in nature this the week. The email from nature, yes. The email from nature mm -hmm. juxtaposes it with an apology for having contributed in the past to uh, racist ramblings of people who should have known better, at least if they had been modern. Right, which. Yes. Undoubtedly, there is a lot of that in yep. nature's history. That is uh, sure. a it's fact, uh, an embarrassing fact of science, and the fact that science yep. is a self-correcting process is the only thing that uh, that rescues it. But and certainly, we shouldn't be pretending it's not right. But the point is to say we are really sorry for screwing up the science and allowing people's prejudices to fly uh, under a scientific banner in our journal, and then the next headline is oh, yeah. that exactly. And it's not as if this is victimless, right? This is obviously trampling the rights of, as you point out, gay people and women. Yes. So, And now children, because children are being mutilated, permanently mutilated. Right. So the point mm -hmm. is, at what may be, you know, the low watermark in the last 7,500 years for the journal Nature with respect to its contributing to the discrimination uh, against innocent people, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it is simultaneously doing that and apologizing it, apologizing for it in the past needlessly because we all understand that it has taken place and that, you know, history uh, of science includes an awful lot of bad science and prejudice. Yeah. It's like Nature is going like, we are so good at seeing what everyone has already pointed out, and we are really bad at seeing what a lot of people are pointing out, but the ideologues won't let us say. And to have those two things in counterpoint with one another in one of the world's two premier science journals tells us that science is in deep trouble. Yes. It's, deep trouble. It, this is, look, this is a game of capture. Yep. And something nakedly political, has idea laundered in fringe journals and it has now captured a premier journal. And in some sense, apologizing for the past wrongs of that journal at the same time that it is championing new wrongs 
is the story, right? Yep. Nature is captured. And frankly, we've been warning about this. Do you remember the uh, shutdown STEM campaign? Oh, yes. Well, they've shut down STEM. That was right after uh, George Floyd died, and many of the cities in the Western world had gone into uh, protests that had gone violent, that had become riots. Right. Yeah. So... Um, Clearly, the thing that you need to do at that moment is shut down STEM. Shut down STEM. And, you know, I don't think people understand in general how dependent they are on a, yes, admittedly flawed, but functional scientific apparatus, functional governance apparatus, functional public health system. <coughs> and when these things get captured, right, yes, it's all very fascinating mm -hmm. but worse than that it's extremely dangerous right how for example were there to be a global pandemic would we navigate it if our science journals had been captured by trans activists right that's where we are and that's so i got one more thing on tsq transgender studies quarterly but that's where we go next in fact a little bit um i didn't read any complete articles in Transgender Studies Quarterly, I couldn't, I, cu I couldn't do it. But I did read a number of abstracts, and I skimmed a number of pieces. I can't say I learned anything, uh, but here's another article that I ran into. Uh, I'm going to have Zach put the abstract up on the screen. It's a, it's called a research article. No, do you not want it up yet? Not quite yet. It's called a research article. It's from May 2017. Every time the word trans is used, it has an asterisk after it, but for ease of reading, I'm going to elide the asterisk. I don't know what that's supposed to signify. The title of this piece is called, is, the title of this piece is The Transness of Blackness, The Blackness of Transness. And it's by someone named Marquise Bay, or maybe it's Marquis Bay. I don't have any idea. Now you can put up the abstract and I will read it. Can I point out something real quick? Yes. Even put the asterisk in the middle of transness. Oh yes. That doesn't get its own. Yes, trans trans asterisk dashness. Maybe it implies abstract. sacredness. The essay thinks the essay also not this essay. The essay, the the royal essay, I guess. The essay thinks radically differently about the concepts of black and trans. Trans and black thus denote poetic, paraontological forces that are only tangentially and ultimately arbitrarily related to bodies said to be black or transgender. That is to say, they are differently inflected names for an anoriginal lawlessness that marks an escape from confinement and a besidedness to ontology. Manifesting in the modern world differently as race and gender fugitivity, Black and trans, though pointed at by bodies that identify as black or trans, precede and provide the foundational condition for those fugitive identificatory demarcations. The author seeks to demonstrate the ways in which trans is black and black is trans. In what ways and to what extent is there a blackness present within transness, and vice versa? What is the effect of these analytics? This essay hopes to address these questions, but also leave them suspended in black trans Liminality. <laughs> it's good. It's good. And it's like, oh it's my like God. a dare. Oh, it's, it's so like good. They're daring you to point out that that is not, it doesn't actually even mean anything. It just, it's, it's, it, it, is, it is at best 
bad poetry. It's Bogon poetry. <laughs> it's, Bogon. it's Bogon poetry. I know it makes me want to jump out of an airlock when I read this. <laughs> but my favorite sentence, I think, in this is, oh, they're d- trans and black are differently inflected names for an anoriginal lawlessness that marks an escape from confinement and a besidedness to ontology. Well, I actually kind of agree with that. <laughs> I don't think it means anything, but I agree <laughs> with its meaninglessness. Oh, my God. So the co-founding editor of this journal, of the journal in which this was published, and no, the co-founding editor of a journal is not responsible for everything that is published in it, whereas that that line about Marr and uh, about the, the, the biological species concept was in the opening uh, volume, the opening issue. So I do think that Paisley Carraw can be held responsible for that. Maybe he can't be responsible for this, but uh, frankly, uh, I would hold Paisley Carraw responsible for the whole thing because for what reason, Nature, did you give this person with negative scientific credibility a giant platform in your esteemed, but not for very much longer, publication? All right. I am going to take up the contrary position here. Okay. All of the shame here belongs to nature. I don't know what Paisley Carraw is. I don't know what Paisley Carraw is up to. Okay. But the entire purpose of a scientific journal is to figure out what is scientific and meritorious enough to broadcast, right? To the extent that some person outside of that world wondered, I mean, effectively, this is the Sokol hoax. You can't blame Paisley for trying. You can't blame Paisley for trying to gain access to one of the premier science journals on Earth. And the fact is, Paisley, he, I guess, has done us a service by revealing that that journal is... uh, non-compass mentis, mm. right? That That is a legitimate service. Fa- okay. The fact is... Is that the service that Paisley was hoping to do? But okay. I don't know. Maybe Paisley's going to reveal Paisley's self to be no. uh, a hoaxer who nope. wanted to prove that Not the journal happen. nature had fallen apart. But, but the point is... I don't think you can blame Paisley for this. I think you blame nature for mm, this. No, I, I, I also put the blame on the academics like Paisley who have been driving academia into the sea for many decades now. And, you know, the fact that the bio uh, reveals this person, uh, I can't remember where I had it, uh, <clears throat> as a professor of political science and women's and gender studies, uh, and has just written, sex is a sex does governing transgender identity. Now, this person is a political activist masquerading as a scholar and now masquerading as someone who knows something about science. And I, I absolutely 100% blame Paisley Kara. But as for why we are being exposed to Paisley Kara's ideas, uh, this could have been beneath the radar for longer if nature hadn't decided to widely publicize uh, this, uh, this insane anti-scientific rhetoric that is masquerading as science? Well, I don't know. I mean, I do think this is actually an interesting question. You have universities that will not defend their faculty against activists who are actively anti-science. Right. Yeah, there's something out of uh, University of Maine this week, I think. Uh, Oh, yeah. some, Some professor insists that there are two sexes and one person in the class 
went along with it and everyone else had a fit and is now demanding, uh, that. demanding that the professor resign, apologize, et cetera. And there's some choice quote from someone who, you know, saying that this is terrible and she's traumatized and oh, by the way, she wants to be a high school science teacher, I think. But I, think I have that right. I think where I come out on this is you have to have standards to run an institution. If your institution surrenders its standards, you know, it's a little bit like leaving the yogurt open on the counter for a week, right? I don't think it's the funniest. You heard it here first. That's what that's that's what's happened to the universities. That's what's happened to the universities. Mm-hmm. They ha- they have become rotten because they have not refrigerated the okay. perishables. But no, uh, paisley kara is not akin to a fungus here because the fungus pre-exists the leaving the yogurt open on the counter and is looking for the niche. But the niche already does exist. It just may not exist in that abundance. But this leaving the yogurt open on the counter thing with the universities has helped create. The Paisley Karaz of the world. Of course. So it's not, it, it's, it's not, no, I don't think, quite an apt I, analogy. I think actually the analogy works very well because, of course, the yogurt that you left out on the counter, Heather, uh, that spoiled, also, created that. fungus, which put out spores, which made the next yogurt spoil Wait, all did the you faster. just say the yogurt created fungus? Well, the yogurt provides a resource on which the fungus grows, which yes, makes the presence of fungal spores that much more common, which is very much like the universities. But the fungus pre separately exists, and I would argue you know there, there's a reason that while trans people have existed in tiny numbers in some cultures across time, there is a reason that we now see this thing and people, you know, dress cosplaying as the opposite sex and and making just a mess of so much of science and law and university and such. And it is not because they existed all the time and they were just looking for the right niche. That niche, that university niche, helped to create them. I agree. But, and, you know, of course, we're not really talking about trans people. We're talking about trans activists who have taken over the universities. And the point is, yes, there's something a little bit different than the biological case in the sense that the fungi that attacked the yogurt... Um, are very long-standing in some sense, but there's nothing unique about the idea that the yogurt provides a different environment than whatever it is the fungus rode into the house on, and that it will adapt to the fun. If you keep leaving yogurt out, it will become very well adapted to gaining access and exploiting yogurt, and that is it. That is what happened to the university. The university did not guard itself against terrible anti-scientific, anti-enlightenment ideas. Those ideas flourished and experimented there, and they have now proliferated out into society where they're looking for all kinds of things beyond yogurt that they can spoil. (laughs) I mean, I just think it's almost, it's almost, it's a perfect analogy, in my opinion. And the point really is, just as I don't blame a mosquito for sucking my blood, Right? I might blame somebody for leaving the door open if that's how it got into the house or something. But I don't blame the mosquito. The mosquito is simply doing what mosquitoes do. People gaming systems is what people do. And it is the obligation of the people who are stewarding those systems to protect them from this nonsense. Yes, but unlike, unlike a mosquito, which cannot receive education and be taught to eat something else. How do you know? A human being who truly believes that they are preaching science when they are preaching anti-science and actually doing damage to not just a lot of people, but a lot of functional systems, 
is at base a human being who can unlearn the garbage that was facilitated by the university system. Okay, I, I agree with you. I'm not, look, my expectation is this person who has gamed uh, this system, probably their intent on, they are at least deaf to the damage that is done by what they're up to, right? They're putting us all in danger uh, by doing this. But I guess what, what I'm really getting at is if you have a government, you should absolutely expect people to try to corrupt it, mm-hmm. right? To the extent that you just assume that away and you leave it vulnerable to corruption, it will be corrupted. And I don't necessarily expect the people buying influence uh, to, you know, rein themselves in. Never. That's not how it works. You leave yogurt on the counter, it's going to spoil. You leave your government open to being corrupted, it will be bought and purchased by people who, you know, see the opportunity early. Right. If you have a university that is supposed to be studying truth and you leave it open to threats from powerful political groups, they will take over the truth apparatus. Mm -hmm. You have a journal that is supposed to uh, limit uh, itself to only high quality ideas in circulation and, you know, you haven't provided a mechanism whereby it will turn down political fads, then it will be taken over by political fads. So. I guess the point is, I, these are entities filling niches, and I don't. I think the point is, the game is always won or lost based on whether or not you left the niche open. If the niche is left open, expect it to be inhabited. It may be inhabited by this person or that person. It may be inhabited by this fungus or that fungus. But the the real story is, you left the niche open, not something inhabited that niche. I think they're both the story. And um, at the, how do we change this and how do we create systems that ensure that they don't get gamed? What you're talking about is the play, is the only place to focus. Right. We don't focus on the perpetrators yeah. of, you know, the, the people who are making bank, whatever that might mean, on um, gaming the current system. That doesn't mean that they don't have agency and don't have consciousness, and couldn't actually be be better human beings if they were trying. Yeah, okay. I, th- I think we've now arrived at it. The real point is, there's only one game in town from the point of view of preventing this sort of thing. Yeah. However, it doesn't relieve anyone of responsibility for uh, yeah. being bad and externalizing harm on others or exploiting uh, illegitimate niches. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got a couple more things. Uh, let me do one of them, and then maybe you go, and then we'll see if we have time for my, for my right. final thing. This week, the Washington, and so I don't have any screenshots for you on this one, unfortunately, Zach. I will link to everything here, but I can't show you. This week, the Washington Post published an article headlined, Women Said Coronavirus Shots Affect Periods. New study shows they're right. Subheadline: A coronavirus vaccination can change the timing of when you get your period. According to research, for most people, the effect was temporary. My first reaction to this was, and I apologize, some of you don't like it when I swear, and some of you like it a lot when I swear, um, but you don't fucking say, WAPO. Like, yes, we know. And yes, there are a lot of us who were yelled at and told that we were anti-vaxxers and far worse 
for suggesting that people were actually experiencing real effects from an experimental treatment. So yeah, good on you. You're a little bit late. You're actually a lot bit late. So there's a news release on the study from NIH, which goes into a little bit more detail. And then of course, there's the original research, which I'm going to read you a few things from. Uh, it's an Edelman and all paper in um, uh, BMJ Medicine called Association Between Menstrual Cycle Length and COVID-19 Vaccination, Global Retrospective Cohort Study of Prospectively Collected Data. <clears throat> so I guess let's do it this way. What you wanted to... No, okay. no I need a pen. Oh. <laughs> this one doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> um, the... Yeah, let's do it this way. I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs from the WAPO piece, the Washington Post piece. Allison Edelman, a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Oregon Health and Science University, based in our former hometown of Portland, Oregon. Allison Edelman, who led the study, said that for most people, the effects were temporary, lasting for one cycle before returning to normal. She said there were no indications that the period side effects had any impact on fertility. Now we can give people information about possibly what to expect with menstrual cycles, Edelman said. So I hope that's overall really reassuring to individuals. Well, no, actually it's not. And here's part of why. Um, the study, this is literally from the abstract of the study, analyzed data on, quote, at least three consecutive cycles before vaccination and at least one cycle after. One. One cycle after vaccination. And they looked at a lot of people. You know, they studied a lot of women. Sorry, it was all women. Uh, but the idea that you can tell anything about long-term effects um, or impact on fertility on the basis of a study that looked at at least, but actually usually exactly, three cycles before and one cycle after vaccination, on what basis is she making these claims? And those claims that she's making as the lead author on this study are now going to be the ones that are repeated and now are going to be the basis for the, you know, PolitiFact and the fact checker organizations who come after people like us who say, actually, no, that research can't say anything about long-term effects or effects on fertility. It simply can't. Did you read the study? And the fact is that the fact checkers at these places aren't scientists. They have no ability and apparently interest in actually reading the research on which they're supposedly fact checking. And here we have the lead author on the paper making egregiously misleading and frankly, just flat out wrong statements to Washington Post, which of course is going to be the thing that people see. Well, and that quote, the idea that upon discovering that indeed these effects that many of us have talked about are real, that the proper response to that is for people to be reassured rather than for yep. the safety apparatus to become alarmed and say, well, all right, given that these effects are real and they shouldn't be happening because these things aren't supposed to be showing up in your reproductive apparatus at all, yep. right? So these... That there's any signal at all here is a story. Right. It is a, a story. story. And the yeah. right response is, how does that change the cost-benefit analysis for any individual who might be taking these things? Yes. The answer is not, oh, well, in our study, it turned out to be short-term because that's all we studied, right? And therefore, people should be reassured. I hope this will cause people to be reassured. There Do you? Is nothing. What there are is... you? Are you a scientist? 
Or are you, in fact, someone who's just trying to change people's minds? Right. The point is this is, this is the sound of the scientific apparatus being used to rationalize irrational and dangerous behavior, right? You've yes. got a safety signal here, and the response is, oh, it isn't, the safety signal is no worse than could be found in our short-term study. Therefore, mm -hmm. people, it, it, it's the absence of evidence is, no, is not evidence of absence, sure. right? There is no long-term aspect of the study published here, and so the point is they're saying, well, there's no evidence of a long-term effect. Well, it wasn't a long-term study. Here we have actually in the paper conclusions, conclusions of the, as written into the abstract. Quote, COVID-19 vaccination is associated with a small and likely to be temporary change in menstrual cycle length, but no change in menses length. Likely to be on the basis of nothing in the paper. That has no place in this paper at all, in the abstract, in the conclusions, anywhere. Where did that likely to be come from? Because they want it to be. That is hope, pretending to be science. And that hope then lives in apparently the lead author's head sufficient that she says to the Washington Post when they come to her, she, she repeats the hope as if it is the science. Guess what? Hope isn't the same as science. This is not how science works. So either this is a case of pharmaceutical idea laundering, mm. right? Where they take a pharmaceutical uh, talking point and they launder it through a scientific process so that it appears to be uh, scientific in some way. Or this person actually believes they've engaged in science themselves and it is a case of some kind of brain laundering, right? Yeah. That their well, mind has... I, I don't see any reason... I, like the paper itself, the research that was done, Yeah. if you ignore the editorializing in the text of the paper itself, and certainly the editorializing that is happening extra paper, like outside of the paper, the, the actual design of the experiment seems to be... like The, the, the science insofar as... It said something narrow and true seems fine. So I don't, I don't think we want to say, oh, you know, was she even doing science? Like, no. No, 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 no. I don't agree with that because it'd be one thing if the people who did the study had done the study legitimately and then someone else scientific was commenting on it with this sort of absurd conclusion. But if it's mm -hmm. in the paper itself, mm -hmm. right, then the point is the paper is a, is a scientific process. The scientific yep. method may be narrowly applied to the experiment that was done, but the e extrapolating only so far as the evidence allows you to, right? Right, but I didn't say this paper is a good example of scientific research. I said... I think that, from what I can see, the actual research that was done, although it is not accurately portrayed in this paper, was potentially good. That is what I said. Well, I, I don't see it that way because, because the degree of extrapolation is inherent to the scientific process. And so if that part is badly done... So that done, leaves you suspect as to what else happened that isn't visible in what we can see? No, I would just say, first of all, if you were to go back through every terrible, wrong paper and say, well, the work itself, does, was this a valid experiment, right? Mm -hmm. You would find many valid experiments that just didn't establish the thing that the paper claimed they had established. So yep. I'm saying to the extent that you have presented a piece of work and the mm -hmm. piece of work is 
here's the data we collected, and here's what it implies based on the fact that we had or did not have a pre-existing hypothesis, and um, these are the things that showed up, um, etc. right? The point is, you either did that job right or you didn't, and to the extent that you ran an experiment that might be valid embedded in some paper, but not the paper you wrote, mm-hmm. uh, that's a pretty thin defense. Okay. Um, one more thing on this story. Sure. Back to the Washington Post piece. Later in the same article, I'll just read these two short paragraphs. Other research has suggested that the vaccines, again, it's the COVID vaccines, have a variety of effects on periods. A survey published last fall collected information about periods and vaccines from 160,000 people, including transgender and postmenopausal people, and found that thousands reported heavier bleeding than usual or breakthrough bleeding. While these observations aren't necessarily medically alarming, Catherine Lee, an assistant professor at Tulane University who led the survey, said the information is important to help trans men plan for additional support if menstruating causes gender dysphoria, and also to help people make decisions about stocking up on tampons and pads. So the first mainstream media acknowledgement that all those women who were saying that their periods were affected by the COVID vaccines and who are now worried about fertility issues and such, and frankly, no one has done anything to allay those concerns, the first mainstream media article to talk about this at all somehow manages to talk about trans men? Like, what is going on here? How, how are we constantly coming back to a fringe activist population when there is actually half of the world who is at risk from these experimental treatments, and here we are being concerned about gender dysphoria and trans men. And what it, is going on? It's, it's worse than that, because... It's got to be the title of this episode. Have, it's worse than that. They have created <laughs> the entire problem. If you simply didn't fuck up the definition of women... <laughs> then those women who happen to be trans men would be covered by this without having to specifically say anything, right? The point is, there is something called a woman, right? It has a biological definition that isn't difficult. It allows you to extrapolate from a paper without a problem. And the only reason that there is any argument for breaking out trans men as victims of this is that you... You scuttled that definition for your own political purposes. It, it, it's frankly insane. And maybe that's the point. It's more It's, more it's insane. And this, and this is more, again, of... You know, the, there are a lot of sex-specific effects of COVID and the vaccines, right? We know this. The myo and pericarditis... Uh, that has been finally begun to be acknowledged, uh, that is uh, more of a risk for young people, is specifically more of a risk for young men, for adolescent boys and young men. And uh, early on, we were hearing, uh, and I actually just haven't seen the stats recently, but I assume it's still true that um, all else being equal, COVID is more likely to go bad for you if you're male than if you're female, if, you know, controlling for all of the other demographic truths about yourself. Um, and so here we have one of the places, and, you know, of course, there were all those insane papers, uh, insane articles early on about how even though men were dying more, COVID was harder on women. Like, remember this? <laughs> I do remember <laughs> this. Like, 
wow, you're really, really working hard there. Well, dying here, is only hard on you at first. But at the point we, you've done it, it becomes, it's all downhill. Yeah. They, now, they, now they're lazy again, <laughs> right? Those, those men not doing their work, <laughs> not doing their fair share of cleanup after they die. Um, but now we have fertility effects and, you know, I don't know, there may be fertility effects for men too. I haven't, we haven't been hearing about those, um, so much. Um, but there have been lots, there has been lots of talk about, uh, menstrual effects, which of course has the potential to ha to be a fertility effect in women. And here we have some research that may or may not actually be, you know, bold enough to have actually seen this. And the Washington Post can't even talk about women for one article it it, well, it it has to go into trans activism sophistry ideology it, we're not we're not allowed to just talk about fertility effects for women even though that would fully include trans men yeah you didn't you didn't need you didn't need to do nothing. a damn thing they were fully included in that discussion if you just simply didn't do a thing mm -hmm. but but no has to be the focus. Has to be the focus. All right. Um, maybe I should take a break. All right. You you, you <laughs> calm down a little bit. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I noticed this week um, that apparently, and I, I admit I don't know exactly who's eligible yet, but amongst people who are eligible for these new bivalent boosters. Mm, the Pfizer's new, yep. Yeah. Uptake has been extremely low. Mm. And my feeling is, you know, whether you love Pfizer or hate Pfizer, I think we can all agree that no one has done more to help COVID than the people at Pfizer. So I wanted to return the favor mm. and suggest that actually what they've got is a marketing problem. And Okay. I'm not looking, I'm not going to charge them for this service, but I thought I would give them a little advice on how to redirect their marketing campaign for these bivalent boosters so that they would get more uptake. Awesome. So you're, you're going into marketing. You're going to pro bono marketing. I just, I Seems think. Like it's not, I it's think not the career move I was expecting. They're not okay. seeing the big picture. They're not seeing right. the big picture. I, that's how I heard that. Not seeing? No. I, <laughs> that was an unintentional if poignant pun. Indeed. Um, but in any case, uh, my thought was this. So far, they have marketed these so-called vaccines mm -hmm. on the basis that it has some, yes, waving your arms and obscuring lots of facts about transmission and contraction of the disease, which it doesn't really prevent and all that, but they've sold them on the basis that something, something, something positive for your health or something along that line. Oh, and save grandma and be a good citizen. Yeah, yeah. all those sorts yeah. of things. And it's not working. Yeah. So I think they've just got it wrong. And what they should be doing in light of the, let's say, unprecedented safety signal that has shown up in the VAERS system and the uh, military database, they should be marketing these things as uh, inoculations for daredevils and thrill seekers, <laughs> right? And I, I just think it would be more successful, right? It's A, it's more honest, mm -hmm. right? The, you know, the question is kind of a gamble and mm -hmm. um, that if they were upfront about that, it might be that people, you know, started lining up for these things. And I wanted to suggest- Hang just, on tight. We're going to take you on a ride. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a little wordy. It's a little wordy. Oh, okay, I was okay, thinking okay. something more like, let us hold your beer. 
Oh. Right? Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Or uh, um, how about this one? What are you? Chicken? <laughs> and you could even, with that one, yeah, you could yeah, have yeah. Wah, 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 noises, sure, right? Sure. Sort of yeah. goading people into demonstrating their bravado. You know, yeah. just to make a page out of Red Bull's playbook. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Also, uh, it occurred to me that, you know, they could just go straight at it. Schmyocarditis, right? The daredevil just scoffs at myocarditis. Oh. They don't fear it. Yeah, I don't think that one works as well because that sounds like you don't believe it exists rather than, I'm not afraid of a little myocarditis. No, I think properly used, myocarditis, myocarditis suggests you think it's unimportant, whether mm-hmm. you think it's not for real, right? So anyway, what do you think? I think, a, I think a daredevil right. ad campaign for three I don't know that you should have done that game. pro bono. I mean, I think this is this this is the way to go. You know, just, before your next adventure, I'm doing um, my part. Do a pre-adventure. <laughs> do a pre-adventure. Yeah. All right. Well, that was more or less the idea. That's it. That's it. I I like it. That's that's that's. It's <laughs> great. That's great. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's see. I, uh, I find myself a little bit thrown by not being able to show my screen. Here we go. Okay, one more, one more story. Um, Phil Harper, who's awesome. You've met him. I have met him. Um, he's got a Substack, The Digger, which I highly recommend. I will put on in the show notes. He pointed to a talk, but somehow I can't now find the talk. So I'm going to just point to his Substack generally. Um, but so just hat tip to to Phil Harper here because I wouldn't have known about this talk, but for but for him. Um, and unless I dreamt the whole thing, in which case I don't know where, how I come into finding this talk. But uh, there's a talk given at Oxford in March 2022 in which a Dr. Dame June Rain, who is speaking on behalf of the regulatory agency in Great Britain known as the MHRA, that's the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the tagline for which is regulating medicines and medical devices. So that's basically, if you're American, this sounds like the FDA, the analog to the FDA. Uh, she gives a talk about the MHRA, about the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which remarkably she calls from watchdog to enabler, regulation in COVID and after. So I've got five screenshots from the talk. Um, So, uh, and again, I'll link to the talk in the show notes as well. Associated with this screenshot with her introducing her talk here, she says, I'm going to talk about how the COVID, quote, how the COVID pandemic has catalyzed the transformation of a regulator from a watchdog to an enabler. And I was telling you about this, Brett, but you were like, enabler of what? Like, of Pfizer, of the pharmaceutical companies. She's mostly talking about the Pfizer shots in this talk, but she also goes into talking about AstraZeneca a little bit, but almost entirely. She is talking about being proud to have moved a regulatory agency from being, have understanding its role as that of watchdog to that of being an enabler of the developers of the treatments that are being brought to them, in this case, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It's a classic case of saying the quiet part out loud. It's unbelievable. It's a jaw-dropping admission. I recommend this. It's, you know, it's 25 minutes or so, and you can skim parts of it. It's, you know, sort of standard academic conference stuff. Um, the next, and just a few screenshots here. Next screenshot, Zach. Uh, 
here we have on the screen a couple of little speech bubbles. And what she says associated with this is, so I was dashing into number 10 for a meeting in the cabinet office, right? So she's, you know, she's important enough to be, that's number 10 Downing Street, of course. Um, that's like saying, so I was dashing into the White House for a meeting at the cabinet office if she was American. And in that meeting, in that meeting at number 10 in the cabinet office, she is asked, as it shows on screen, by someone, I didn't catch the name, uh, will the MHRA stop us from killing people? And she immediately responded, no, the MHRA will help you keep people alive. And this is how she understands her role changing as, as a regulatory, as, as a person who's helping lead a regulatory agency through an emergency, is no, I'm not gonna put the brakes on. I'm gonna speed things up. So again, proud enough of this to have it on screen. Okay, next screenshot. Uh, this is just, this is not all that informative. This has the tagline for MHRA, but what accompanies her saying this, uh, what, accompany, what accompanies her showing these agencies that are collaborating now under, under her watchful guidance is, quote, we collaborated across these boundaries as never before. And she does say she knows we need to remain independent. That's really important. But then she says enthusiastically that, quote, we tore up the rule book. During COVID, we, the regulatory agency in, of Great Britain, tore up the rule book. Okay, next screenshot. So this shows uh, the MHRA having facilitated, uh, having allowed pharma, pharma to change the timing of clinical trials, whereas used to be phase one, phase two, phase three, had phase one had to actually be done before you went into phase two, and phase two had to be done before you went into phase three. Um, she, she is proud of the fact that during COVID under MHRA, they changed the guidelines so that now pharmaceutical companies could modify the timing of the clinical trial such that you could have the phases overlapping one another. And she says, quote, of the vaccines, um, which had begun to be manufactured well before even the first phase was done, first phase of the clinical trial was done, quote, large scale manufacture was prepared at risk. We did not know if any of these vaccines would be effective, end quote. But surely, surely everyone, even this audience, this small audience where she's giving this talk at Oxford in March of 2022 can see that at the point that the government has purchased in advance the large-scale manufacture of a whole bunch of vaccines and they don't actually have the safety data yet, that it's going to be that much harder to say, actually, no, all of those have to go into the trash. Hate to say it, but it's, it's worse, worse than, than that. that. <laughs> it is. Because if you, if you listen to this, knowing what has taken place during this process, yeah. right? If you know what we know now about what took place in the drug trials, for example, mm -hmm. there was never any risk that these vaccines were not going to be safe and effective, right? Safe in, in which case, why not do this? Right? Well, like, why not just overlap phase one, phase two? Phase that's three? just the thing. This is yeah. pro forma. The idea is what we now have is a safety yes. system incapable of recognizing a safety signal that is yes. really just a, a laundering, a safety and effectiveness laundering apparatus for that is um, effectively a branch of pharma. And yeah. if that sounds hyperbolic... I know in the U.S. that a tremendous percentage of the money that flows through the regulatory apparatus is actually pharma money, right? That the system has been built to fail where 
the controls have been handed to pharma, the financial controls, the power of the purse, effectively. And what, what this sounds like to me, if you were, if you've got, if you're pharma, mm -hmm. then you ought to live in fear that the regulatory apparatus is going to be uh, uncompelled that your product is safe and or effective. That's what they're there for. That's and really, if you're pharma, you ought not live in fear because you ought to know that the regulatory apparatus is there and therefore you ought to do your damn job and produce a safe and effective product to begin with. Right. But of course, uh, the fiduciary responsibility of the corporation is yes. uh, clear and the fact is it was very expedient from the point of view of taking care of their shareholders to capture the apparatus so there was never any risk, right? That At a business level, that makes sense. It's criminal, but um, at a business level, it makes sense. And so if you were to do that, if there is a governmental regulatory apparatus, its purpose is to prevent dangerous and or ineffective treatments from making it to market. Mm -hmm. Pharma can't tolerate that because business is difficult. So it captures that apparatus. It's still, the zombies inside of that apparatus still exist. They still have to give speeches about their role in the process. And they have to occasionally wag their finger at pharma in order that they still look like a regulatory apparatus. But basically, what will they sound like to themselves, right? Mm -hmm. They will sound like they think it is clever that they tore up the rule book. Right? They will be proud of the fact that their watchdog role has been transformed into enabler, which surely is not the term she was looking for. Facilitator would it's have been... It's literally in the title of the talk. Right. So the point is, to the extent that people talk behind closed doors and they say things that they wouldn't and shouldn't in public, this is one of these cases where enabler sounds like internal language. It sounds like, frankly, pharma language, right? Where right. Actually, we're going to get the regulatory apparatus to function as an enabler of this process. Well, maybe she's the Rochelle Walensky of That is exactly what I'm getting, yeah. is, let's put it this way. What pharma did is despicable, but it makes sense, mm -hmm. right? What these people do is despicable, but it makes sense, right? right? These are careers that are being made. How is your career being made? Is it being made by being a good watchdog? No, that'll get you tossed out on your ear. Right? It's mm -hmm. being made by transitioning your role from watchdog to enabler. Mm -hmm. Right, That's how you rise. And so the point is, we are hearing this weird mixture of the internal dialogue and the public presentation of you know, the victory lap. And it's like, well, A, what are you taking a victory lap about? It's not like you distributed a product that worked. Right. It didn't. And what's more, it was hugely dangerous. So why you know why are you championing the change in the process that you you shepherded but nonetheless we get to hear it and it does sound like um it sounds like what you would imagine a captured regulatory industry uh, uh, apparatus is like on the inside yeah right as it rationalizes to itself its failure totally and actually the the last screenshot which isn't a isn't a giant deal, but uh, I'm to show it, Zach, uh, proudly discusses the agency's regulatory flexibilities. <laughs> and, you know, that, that like enabler strikes me as a word that they really ought had and not publicized. They, they are, as you say, saying the quiet part out loud here. And yet, and, you know, as easy as they're making it, for those of us who are paying attention, still, Still, we are the ones who are considered to be 
purveyors of mist, dis, smell, and all the other bad types of information. Yes, which of course have been declared terrorism. Yes, I don't know if they have in Great Britain or not, but... Well, I mean, Great Britain is one of the five eyes. No doubt terrorism here is terrorism there. That's probably true. So... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that um, that happened back in March 2022, um, and uh, it's shocking, frankly. I, I, I'm, I'm no less shocked than if than if the FDA, I don't even know who the lead on the FDA is, but some equivalent person at the FDA to, um, to this woman at the, at the FDA's analog in, in Great Britain had, had said these things. We are proudly moving. We're excited. We're excited to have thrown away the rule book, to have moved from watchdog capacity to enabler, to be engaging in regulatory flexibilities. And, and anyone is confused as to the lack of oversight and the fact that we don't actually, lots and lots of people ever more every day are saying, I don't actually trust you guys to make decisions on my behalf. No, no, not you, not now. Yeah, well, the, um, one of the truly evil aspects of this is that many of us were calling attention to the evidence of what was going on as it happened. And mm-hmm. the evidence was, of course, less than it is now, right? right? But right. that was a very risky thing to do. Right. And um, we can now see that, you know, what should be a alarm bell going off at the acknowledgement that, in fact, there are reproductive consequences to these products mm-hmm. um, and that that ought to mm-hmm. cause a rethink probably temporary probably temporary right but the point is you what you can see for sure now with the amount of evidence that is currently available even just to the general public what you can see is that the system is completely indifferent to the risk it's putting citizens at completely indifferent it is not changing its tune about whether or not you should be inoculated with this stuff based on the alarming evidence of the safety signal, mm-hmm. based on the evidence of the ineffectiveness of the shots at preventing you from contracting or transmitting the disease. It has yet to do any attempt at risk stratification analysis. Right. No evidence of risk stratification, which tells you right there that this process has nothing to do with health because the cost-benefit analysis is obviously risk stratified. Which is just to say, again, like risk stratification by age... And this is something we've talked about before, and many, <clears throat> many doctors have as well. Um, we have known from the beginning that this virus is much more likely to bring you to your knees the older you are. Also, the more comorbidities, but the risk stratification by age means that, given that the virus is very unlikely to do you harm if you are a healthy young person, and also, separately, the vaccines seem to be more likely to do you harm the younger you are, Risk stratification analysis would suggest that there should be different guidelines for, at the very least, different guidelines for whether or not you're expected to take this thing. Steeply different. Steeply different. And yet, what? Most of the elite universities in the United States are now requiring not just vaccines, but boosters for their students, for their presumably young, healthy student populations. Are you trying to kill them? What is going on? Right. It's insane. You should have, let's put it this way, the Date, if there is an argument for these so-called vaccines at all, 
there should be an age at which the cost-benefit analysis yes. flips enough in their favor that we recommend it. And that age should be in motion with the more evidence that we have. Yes. And the fact that that age doesn't exist at all, we're just like, oh, they're good. Get them. Yeah. Right? That's like, well... Six months old, get them. <laughs> Pregnant, em. get it. Right. Yeah. That's, that is a manufacturer's view of a product. Is this product for you? Definitely. Yes. Right? There is no, it's not a question, well, who are you? Let's figure out whether this product is for you. You can see that. And so, as long are as you're human, we got a thing for you. As long as you can see that that is what's going on, that the thing is not interested in who you are, even though the evidence suggests that that should be the primary question in deciding whether or not to recommend it, and that it isn't just mm -hmm. the manufacturers who are so indifferent to your well-being, it's the thing that is supposed to be protecting you. Once you've seen that, then the real question is, well, was that true from the start? What about all that shit you told me that turned out it wasn't right? Did you know it wasn't right? Right. Right? That's really the question. And um, I do hope we ultimately, I, I doubt we will ever get a full reckoning, but we have to, we have to try because, um, to the extent that the system that allowed this to happen is completely captured and we are dependent on its functioning, not just this time, but next time, <coughs> it, it won't be better next time unless we figure out what got into it. That's right. No, and one of one of the um, recurring themes in that video that I showed you screenshots of from Oxford in March of 2022 is the is the rejoicing that during the next pandemic and there will be a next one, she proclaims, and it's true. They've already got all these changes in place, so it'll be easier next time. Easier. It'll be easier next time to be the enabler, and no worries about them being a watchdog. <coughs> yeah, I inhaled some uh... dust. I think it might be time for us to get off. All right. <coughs> oh, damn it. You do have water over there. It's not helping. I was drinking it. Okay. <coughs> all right. Well. Oh, my God. You all right? Yeah. <coughs> you should talk. I'm trying to figure out how to address the conclusion of the podcast. Back. You're back? All right. Oh, dust. Oh, it's still there. Okay, let's let's finish this up. Yep. And we <clears throat> we will be back for Q and A. And whenever I stop coughing, <laughs> ten approximately ten to fifteen minutes. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> All right. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. You can email logistical questions. Uh, to darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. Mm. If this happens again, I'm just going to start singing. Please do something. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just look at me while we're stuck to one camera, camera here. Oh, my God. Um, okay, so uh, join our Patreons. Brett, has a, you have another conversation tomorrow, right? Yes, I do. Uh, for one of your Patreon groups. Those are, those are always good. Uh, if you want to read a little bit more about objection to vaccine mandates and why they are out of control, go to my Substack, Natural Selections. That's what I wrote about this week. And, uh, and we'll be talking about that more uh, on Dark Horse soon as well, I think. Uh, and until next time, we'll be back here uh, same time next week. Until then, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. 
fly low and avoid the dust.